0: The following audio is from Axe Church in Leander, Texas. More information about Axe is available at axechurchleander.com. Uh, so if you can't tell, I'm a, a hair under the weather today, and so you'll, you'll just uh, have to bear with me. Um, God willing, we should be good. I'm on all sorts of meds, so who knows what could come out. it be really exciting. Um, but uh, we, are, we are in the midst of a, of a, of a series called All Things New And in this series, we're looking at how the arrival of Jesus makes all things new. And so this week, uh, we're looking at how the arrival of Jesus presents a new way, a new way of relating to God. And we're just going to jump right into it. Um, One of the first things we see in this text that that we just read uh, from from the Gospel of Luke, the, the Gospel writer Luke, I don't know if you caught this, in the first two verses, he's actually forcing our hand. In the first two verses, he's saying, hey, listen, you've got to pay attention. What's about to happen is really important. You need to pay attention to it. Look with me uh, at, at the first two verses. It says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, thank you, uh, Those are hard words. That's what I was just thinking. Okay, we're moving along. Uh, During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. All right, so we see in this text, he's laying out the historical context. He's saying, this guy was the emperor, he starts kind of at the 30,000 foot view, and then he works it down, he says, and and this guy was the governor of this particular region, and then these were the the local leaders, the local rulers of of the given people, and then he finally gets to the the ecclesial leaders, the religious leaders of the day, and he says, this is who was in charge in these positions, these are the folks holding power. Now why does he do that? He's writing this at a time when, when people who would have read it, the first original readers of this text, they would have known who these rulers were. They would have known exactly what time frame he's talking about. And if you were to to look over the the Roman histories uh, written by Tacitus or look over the the histories written by by the Jewish historians, by Josephus, you would see that they talk about these rulers too, that, that they were lined up at the same time. And so he's giving specific dates, specific times, specific places. Because he wants us to see this is a historical reality. He wants to see that, that everything that comes after this, it actually happened. It really took place in real time and real space. And I stress that because that's, that's what he does. He stresses this because it says, if the gospel writer Luke anticipates our inherent move to sort of relegate the things in the Bible to being sort of these, these abstract spiritual truths that we can kind of take or leave. May or may not be true. May or may not have actually happened but at least it's got some nice sentimental value to it. No, no, no. Luke says, this actually happened. It is a, a fact of history. It just, it really happened. And so you can't avoid it. You got to go through it. It's like uh, my boy Titus, his favorite book right now is Going on a Bear Hunt. Anyone ever read that book? Okay, excellent. Very good. Very good. All right. And so for those of you that, that aren't familiar with it, it's a family going on a bear hunt, and, um, and they, they keep encountering obstacles. And so like one of the first ones they encounter is a field of grass, which, you know, it's not that hard, but, but the, the, the chorus of this, this book goes, can't go over it, can't go under it, got to go through it. There's a little rhythm to it. Can't go over it, can't go under it, got to go through it. And see, that's what Luke is doing by setting up the historical context, is he's saying, hey, don't blow this off, don't pretend like this isn't real, don't pretend like this didn't happen in real time and space. You got to go through it. Can't go over it. Can't go under it. Got to go through it. And he does that because we're about to get into the message of John the Baptist. And I don't know if you caught it, but John the Baptist's message is a hard teaching. Like he drops bombs, man. Like he is just right in your face, punching you in the face again and again. And his ministry doesn't have a happy ending. I don't know if you know this. He doesn't get a retirement party at the end of his ministry. Uh, instead, he, he gets his, his message was so offensive and so radical that he actually got his head chopped off and served on a platter to the leaders of his day. Right? So if you get offended by his message today, you're not alone. Okay? You're not alone. But what we see in this text, what John does is he presents us a new way. Presents us a new way to relate to God. And we'll notice four things about that way in this text. Four, four. the way is counterintuitive, the way is personal, the way is practical, the way is immediate. Counterintuitive, personal, practical, immediate. All right? So let's get going. The way is counterintuitive. Uh, look with me at verse 3. And he went into the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All right, so what's John's message? It's, it's pretty simple, right? It's, it's repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. That's it. Repent, be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, what, why is he saying, why is that his message? And what about that message is counterintuitive? Well, look with me at verses four through six. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight, Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So why is John the the Baptist's message, repent and be baptized? It's because he's fulfilling what Isaiah the prophet wrote about him, that he needed to, that this is what God prophesied, he'd have a guy doing this, that John the Baptist would prepare the way of the Lord. Well, how does he do that? He makes the paths straight. He fills the valleys. Every mountain and hill is laid low. Crooked places are made straight. Rough places are smoothed out. And everyone can hear and see God's salvation. That's what John's doing. He's preparing the way for the Lord. Now, obviously, we see John is not literally laying low mountains, right? He's not like walking around chucking dynamite everywhere. And he's not straightening passes and have his construction crew out making it happen. No, no, no. He's preparing the way for the Lord In our hearts. That his message of repentance and baptism for the forgiveness of sins is his way of preparing our hearts to receive the Lord. It's making the crooked places in our hearts straight, it's smoothing out the rough edges, it's bringing us low so that we can receive the Lord. Now, here's why this is counterintuitive. Look with me at verse 7. He's got people coming to listen to him, coming to check him out. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Don't you love that? That That's my kind of preaching right there. You know, like, show up. All right, thanks for coming. Um, Yeah, (laughs) like, why is his message so extreme? Like, why is he just insulting these people what's going on well what's happening is is he's he's speaking to a jewish audience and the jewish audience was expecting the messiah and they believed hey when the messiah comes god is going to judge and god is is going to destroy his enemies those that aren't in line with him are going to be in trouble he's going to bring judgment on his enemies and now these folks they're good religious people they're the good guys they're doing good stuff And so they're expecting to be on God's good side when he comes in judgment. Because that's the the ideology of religious people, right? That's how religious people think. Good people are on God's good side. Bad people are on God's bad side. So be a good person, and then you're on God's good side. But John says to them, he says, oh no, don't think you're a good person. You guys are vipers. Children of vipers. Like You need to repent. You need to be baptized. You need to be washed clean. You see, that's why the way is counterintuitive. I say this a lot, but there's a reason for it. The default setting of the human heart is religious. The screensaver of your heart says, if I'm good, if I follow the Ten Commandments, if I say my prayers, if I give to the poor, then God will like me, then God will have to bless me, then God will accept me into heaven because I've been good. And we see if we look through the history of religion and we look at at religions right now, this is why every other religion says, hey, you follow these rules and you'll be accepted by God. Follow the the five pillars, you're good to go. Take the eightfold path, you're good to go. Listen to these commands and you're all right with God. Pray these prayers, light these candles, and everything's going to be okay. Do these things and then God will accept you. But see, John the Baptist's message to absolutely everyone, good people, bad people, religious people, irreligious people, doesn't matter. His message to everyone is repent, be baptized, get forgiven. His message isn't do good stuff to balance out your scale before God. No, he says your scale is so messed up. You are in so much debt to God, you got no hope unless you repent and beg for his forgiveness, receive his mercy. The way is counterintuitive. And see, so this is a message that both Christians and non-Christians need to hear. See, so if you're not a Christian, you need to hear this message. First of all, by the way, welcome. We're so glad you're here. Uh, but also, here's why you need to hear this message. Uh, one of the most common arguments I hear uh, from friends of mine who aren't Christians, they say to me, Gabe, listen, man, I Christianity sounds great and all, uh, I, I believe in it, but, but it's just so exclusive. Like, you're telling me, Gabe, that, that in order, the only way for us to be right with God is to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus alone for our salvation. That's how we're made right with God. I say, yeah, that's it. I say, that's so narrow, man. It's got to go through Jesus. That's so narrow. And they say, Gabe, why can't all good people be saved? Why can't all good people be saved? I say, okay. Let's, let's, let's do that. Where do you want to draw the line? Who's the good person? Who's the bad person? How do you want to decide that? Say, okay, well, let's, let's start with a, a major offender, right? So start sex traffickers. I think we can all agree that guys who kidnap girls, drug them, and then pimp them out around the world are bad dudes. Uh, under God's judgment, that's an issue, right? So bad guys, right? They don't make the cut. Okay, very, very good. Now, what about the Johns? You know, it's a supply and demand industry. So what about the Johns that actually purchase these girls? I mean, it's a terrible thing to do. they probably under God's judgment, too. Yeah, okay, Gabe. Yep. Yeah, under the... All right. All right, now, of course, once again, it's a supply and demand industry. And, of course, uh, you know that a, a ton of money that fuels sex trafficking is from online pornography. So we should probably... Anyone who's ever looked at that, probably not going to make the cut. All right, so statistically speaking, now we have half of all men in this country and a quarter of all women in this country just got thrown under the bus. And then we say, well, of course, we know the root cause of all of this is the fact that we as people have a tendency to treat other people as objects and objectify them instead of treat them as persons. And so, you know, we really should have an issue with that. So how about anyone who's ever objectified another person, treat another person as an object instead of a a person, they don't make the cut either, and we could keep going. But but where's the line? And pretty soon we look around and we say, "Where have all the good people gone, Jack Johnson? Where's the good people? Oh, listen to more music. Where are the, where are the good people? Where do you draw the line? Where do you draw the line? Who's in? Who's out? You see, John the Baptist line is absolute. It's really simple. He says, "You're all a mess. You all need to repent." You all need to be forgiven. Every single person, my grandma and Charles Manson, both need to repent. You can't get over it, can't go under it, you got to go through it. Everyone needs to repent and turn to Jesus. This includes Christians too. See, this is why it's important for Christians to get this message. See, what will happen in the life of a Christian is you say, okay, all right. I get it. It's not about me. I don't, I don't earn my way to God by doing good things. It's all about his grace for me and Jesus, and I believe that, and I receive that, and I know I'm saved just by what Jesus has done. But then, as you go about and you live your Christian life, what starts to happen is that default setting of, of religion kicks in your heart. And so when things don't go your way, you start to think, well, I must not be making God happy. Things aren't going my way, so I must have misstepped, and I'm not being a good enough person. Or, when things do go your way, they say, well, of course, I've been following everything God told me to do. I'm doing the right things, and so things are going my way. God kind of owes me. This happens all the time. And so we need to again and again be reminded that we need to repent and be forgiven. So one of my biggest mentors uh, when I was in college was a guy who uh, his job was he was a, a missionary at MIT, uh, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, right? Ivy League School, missionary there two fraternities, okay? So missionary two fraternities at MIT. Now, just think about this gig for a second, right? So he's at MIT. Some of the smartest people in the world are there. So that's a a hard group to reach because, you know, last time I checked on the internet, apparently Christians are all idiots. So so hard to to reach that group. Uh, But then on top of it, it's frat guys, right? So it's like reaching out to drunk geniuses. Like, it's just very, very hard to do. And so he'd tell me stories of, of what he would do, like kind of how he worked. And, and he'd just go to parties, party after party after party. And, and he'd hang out there, and he'd get to know these guys. And, and we'd talk to them in the morning, not so much that night. And, and, and he'd, he'd pray over them. He'd pray at these parties. He'd talk to these guys. They'd get to know him. He'd build relationships, and he'd share the gospel with them. And he was seeing this incredible fruit. He'd see a bunch of guys come to faith. It was really, really cool. And, and part of his gig, though, was he had to, to raise all his own funds. Uh, the, the ministry he was working with, that's every year he just had to raise his own salary. And, uh, and, and he'd been doing this gig for a few years, and eventually his funding well went dry. And so he's in seminary at this time, and then he's also doing this ministry full-time, and all of a sudden his funding well just dries up, and no one's supporting him anymore. Do you know what happened to him after that? He left the faith. Right now, if you were to go hang out with him, he's, he's not a Christian anymore. He's Pretty clear about that, pretty adamant about that. Now, how does that happen? How does that happen to him? See, what happened is, he got to a point where he was doing such good stuff for God, right? That subconsciously, he started to believe that God somehow owed him. That because he continued to be a good Christian, he continued to share the gospel, continued to do what God would have him do, the second God didn't show up in the way that he thought he should... Second, God didn't provide from the way he thought that God owed him to. He was done. He was done. Now, if that way of approaching God crept into my friend, the missionary at MIT's mind, do you think it's possible that that happens to you? Do you think it's possible that even as a Christian who knows all about God's grace for you in Jesus... That's possible to forget about that way of relating to him and start relating to him on the basis of your works. God, to have been, been good. You, you kind of owe me this year. I'm on the nice list. John the Baptist says his message is repent and be forgiven. That's it. That's the way to relate to God. The way is counterintuitive. But we also see that the way is personal. Look with me at verses 8 and 9. John the Baptist is speaking. He says this, Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. All right, so once again, John the Baptist is, is speaking to a predominantly Jewish audience, and so they would have heard kind of his harsh words and said, Okay, whoa, hey, calm down, bro. Listen, we're Abraham's kids. We're part of Abraham's family. Like, because of our bloodline, we're good to go with God. We get it, it's not about our works, it's about our blood, it's about who we are. And John the Baptist says, No, 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 no. You don't ride on someone else's coattails before God. He says, It doesn't matter who mom and dad are. You've got to repent. You've got to be baptized. You need to be forgiven. The way is personal. You see, and this happens to us too. See, it's not, it's not enough that you were raised in a Christian home. It's not enough that you grew up going to church. It's not enough that you show up here and make your wife happy. You show up here to keep your parents off your back. It's not enough. You've got to own it. It's not enough to say, well, I really like Pastor Gabe, and so as long as he's doing right." Scary to let your faith rest on someone else's. You've got to own it. You need to come before God in repentance, be baptized, be forgiven. You need to put your trust in, your, in salvation uh, with Jesus for you. You can't ride the coattails of someone else's relationship with God. You can't ride the coattails of someone else's faith. At one point or another, it has to be real to you. Like, you have to own it. It's personal. You can't go over it, can't go under it. You gotta go through it. A way is personal. It's also practical. Look with me at verses 10 through 14. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. All right, so folks, they hear John the Baptist's message. They're cut to the heart. They repent. They're baptized. They're forgiven. They realize it's not about piling up their works before God, but that it's about his grace for them. They're totally dependent, that it's not about their works. And they say, okay, we're with you so far, John. Now what do we do? What do we do? We know it's not about our works. What do we do? And John says, Do good works. What? Right? John, I thought you just said it wasn't about our works, that our works get us nothing before God. That's exactly right. Because your works aren't for God, your works are for people. That those who have tasted of God's grace are now able to extend that grace to others in tangible, practical ways. That those who repent and trust in Jesus are freed. They're free to be generous towards other people. Like, do you get that? Does that make sense? Do you see that if like in the center of your being, if you saw that you stand before God, the God of the universe, God created everything, that as you stand before him, he smiles on you, he embraces you, that because of what he's done for you in his son Jesus, that he says, hey, I love you. I'm never letting go. That as you look at the grand scheme of your life, that no matter what happens, that ultimately you're okay. Ultimately you're okay. If you have that at the center of your being? Do you get how that frees you to live for others? So I've talked about this a little bit before, but a few years ago when we were getting ready to, uh, to plant this church and I was doing some of the, the groundwork, uh, paving the way out here, we... Um, I just felt this, like, great pressure to succeed, and I just felt, like, just crushing weight, like, I I don't know if this is going to make it, like, God, I think I may destroy this church before it even gets off the ground, and I would just second-guess every decision I made. Uh, I wasn't sleeping at night. I questioned whether or not I was prioritizing the right things, and I was just crippled with this fear of failure. And I remember I I told uh, the pastor of X Church Lakeway, Pastor Pete, and I said, "Amen." This is what's going on. And he said, you got to stop that. I know. <laughs> and, uh, and he said, listen, man, this is the only way. He said, Gabe, for me, he said, if Axe Lakeway, the church he planted and, and, uh, and leads, he says, if it falls apart right now, he says, if, if everything I worked on for this church, everything I, I poured myself into, if it all goes bottom up, if it all burns to the ground, he says, I'm okay. He says, I know I'm going to be okay. God is still in control. God's grace is still for me. That ultimately, I'm still okay. And he says, Gabe, it's only from that place, it's only from having myself centered in that place that I'm freed to do the ministry I need to do. Now, can I tell you, for me, like those were the most liberating words ever. I was just like, oh, I guess that does make sense. It's amazing when you're a pastor and the gospel rings true for you. Right? It's a good thing. It's a good thing. So from now on, I'm able to place myself in the grand scheme of things. I recognize Jesus made the way clear for me before God that his grace is for me. And so we could fall apart. Man, y'all could flip me the bird right now and leave, right? It could happen. And I'd be hurt, but ultimately, I'd be Okay? And so that actually frees me to do ministry better. I don't have to second-guess myself. I don't have to worry about, well, is this the right thing? No, God's in control. God's grace is with me. I'm accepted by him. I'm freed to love people the way he's designed me to do that. And see, the same is true for you. That if you can take it into the center of your being, if at the core of who you are, you can see I'm forgiven, I'm redeemed, I'm a child of God because of what Jesus has done for me, that actually frees you to live your life for others. Right? Frees you to live your life for others. So, so if there's, you know, homeless kids in Austin need hoodies, here's 20 of them. Kids in Guatemala need nutritional beverages, I can drop $44. Man, i got a trust fund with the God of the universe. I'm good to go. It's no problem. Someone hurts me, someone wrongs me, may sting for a little bit. That's all right. I'm still loved and cared for by God. Good to go. The way is practical. Finally, the way is immediate. Look with me at verses 15 to 17. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so as John's speaking to these people, they say, hey, wow, this guy's message is pretty amazing. It's really powerful. He says, so is this guy the Messiah? Is he the one that God is going to set all things right through? Is he the one that God is going to judge the living and the dead through? And John knows that they're thinking this, and he says, whoa, whoa, whoa. Nope, nope, it's not me. It's not me. I'm just pointing the way to him. He says, the one who's coming is mightier than me. He says, the one who's coming, man, he's so great. He's so awesome. He's so incredible. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. He's so great. But I don't know if you caught this, this this picture he paints of Jesus. He says he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. And then he gives this this hardcore image of the winnowing fork in his hand, clearing the threshing floor. In other words, what he's saying here is he's going to be the dividing line, though. He's so great, he's so wonderful, but he is the dividing line with him. Where you land with him is going to determine everything. And guess what? He's coming. He's coming. The way is immediate. The same is true for us. See, John the Baptist is painting a picture of Jesus that isn't him holding a sheet. And gently caressing it, right? Why? Because John the Baptist knows that Jesus is, of course, gentle and loving and compassionate. Absolutely. But he's not a wimp. I think sometimes we have this wimpy image of Jesus, but listen, he didn't come into the world to take on the forces of darkness, to destroy death forever, to take away our sin by just offering it tissues and a cup of hot cocoa and a hug. No, man, he came to clean house. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And we need to understand that that if, if we're not right with him, we don't line with him, we get cleaned out too. We're lost. And you cannot like that and that can make you really uncomfortable. Doesn't change it from being true. Doesn't change the reality that you need to respond to him. That Jesus is the dividing line. You have to deal with that. There is no neutral when it comes to Him. But here's the good news no matter who you are, no matter what you've done, no matter where you come from, what you haven't done, whatever, it doesn't matter. John's message is for you that as you repent, as you confess of your sins before God, you're forgiven. That as you say to God, listen, I don't have it all together. God, my, my good works are not enough to make it okay between you and me. If you say, God, I need Jesus. I need his blood shed for me on the cross. I need that. And you are made right with God. Just like that. It's that easy. As you put your trust in Jesus, you receive God's grace in Christ. You're set right with God forever. You're good to go. So trust in him and live in the new way that God has given you in Christ. If you all please pray with me. Lord God, give you thanks for this day, for my friends who've gathered here to worship you, for my friends who've gathered here because they're just figuring stuff out. God, I pray that your spirit would be at work that you'd point us to Jesus, that you would teach us to trust in him, that we'd repent of our sin and receive the forgiveness you've given us in your son. We pray this all in his name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Acts Church in Leander, Texas. Feel free to share this message with others and stay connected with us at actschurchleander.com.